up here and say something. That was cool, wasn't it? Did you guys feel a little weird about that, kind of seeing them? That was good. Uh, very encouraging. We're planning on doing that, I think, a couple more times this month because Jack's going to be out on a few weekends this month. This weekend, he's up in Idaho. Uh, one of the churches that our church was involved in helping to plant uh, in Twin Falls, Idaho, was celebrating, I believe, their 10th year uh, of existence. And so they had asked Jack to come up and do a special uh, service there. So that's where he's at this weekend. Well, this morning, I'd uh, like to have you turn to Psalm uh, 100. And while you're doing that, I'd just like to remind you men that in a couple weekends from now, we are having the men's conference here. And um, I think the title of the conference is a challenge to you to come. It's Stand Up and Be a Man. Uh, real men go to men's conferences. And so uh, I would expect to see all you fellows here. It's on Friday night, the 16th, and most of the day Saturday, the 17th. I believe there are sign-ups uh, in the foyer. Is that correct? So make sure you sign up for that, guys. Uh, Carl Hargrove is going to be speaking, and he is definitely a motivator. You will not regret having spent time that weekend. I want to begin our time together with a question. What gives you joy? What makes you excited? What brings a smile to your face? As you think about your wedding day, birth of your child, maybe a vacation, pizza, yeah, I knew that would get some of you. How about the first time you heard the words mommy or daddy? Your team winning it all. Your son's first hit. Grandchildren. Ice cream. Great achievement. Playing an instrument. Your children moving out. <laughs> what makes you glad? I ask this because as I was preparing for the message this week, uh, my mind went back to many events in my life, things that brought me joy or excitement. I still remember very vividly the first time that I told Tina that I loved her and our first kiss. I remember the entry into the world of each of my children. I remember that street corner in Santa Monica when God lifted the burden of my sin. And as I reflected on these things, I had to honestly ask myself, do I experience the same kind of emotion when I think about God, when I focus my attention on Him, when I come to praise and worship Him. How about you? If you were to consider the most thrilling and exciting moments of your life, how would they compare to the excitement that you feel or that you exhibit when you come to give God worship, when you come to praise Him? This morning, we're going to reflect on the subject of praise and worship from Psalm 100. And I believe, it's my opinion, this psalm is one of the crown jewels of the Psalter. It is a powerful and emotional poem that unleashes full and passionate worship to God. A well-known hymn from the Reformation called All People That On Earth Do Dwell was based on this psalm. It was written by William Keith of Scotland, who was friends of John Knox, which we will, Jack's going to talk about in a few weeks. And this man, William Keith, actually fled the persecution under Bloody Mary. The hymn, which is soon uh, sung to the tune of our doxology that we sing today, became so well known in England that not long afterwards, Shakespeare actually referred to it in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow also included it and alluded to it in The Courtship of Miles Standish. And in The Coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, it was sung during communion. This psalm is well known. Let's look at it together. Psalm 100. 
A psalm for thanksgiving. Joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. When I read this psalm, the word that pops into my mind is exuberant. The word exuberant means abounding in vitality, extremely joyful, vigorous, almost uninhibitably, uninhibitably enthusiastic. And that's exactly the tone and the focus of this noble poem. Psalm 100 is a powerful and penetrating message. It's got a simple message, but it's direct. And that message is, give exuberant worship to God. Give exuberant worship to God. That is the focus of this poem. We don't know who the author of the poem is. We aren't given that information. I believe it may be David, given its similarity to his poem in 1 Chronicles 16. The only background information that we're given in this psalm is in the title. It says, A Psalm for Thanksgiving. That's likely referring to the special occasion when people would come to the temple to bring thank offerings to the Lord. A time of confession, a time of opportunity to tell the Lord, thank you for your forgiveness, to give him thanks for the blessings that he has given in life. And as worshipers approach the temple with thank offerings in hand, the psalmist here is calling them to remember who they are approaching. And he's calling them to remember in what manner that God desires to be approached. Psalm 100 communicates principles of worship which are just as relevant today. God has not changed, and neither has how He wants us to approach Him changed. We would do well to learn from our Old Testament brothers here of what God deemed acceptable and desirable praise. We're given two principles we need to know here to give God exuberant worship. The first principle is that God desires exuberant worship. The second principle is that God deserves exuberant worship the psalm gives seven commands on how we are to come before the lord these are short rapid commands in nature and they communicate the emotion they communicate the passion they communicate the desire and the enthusiasm that the psalmist has in coming to give god worship and praise let's look at the first principle which we'll see from verses one two and four and that god desires exuberant worship The psalm begins with a command, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. That word for shout joyfully is actually a word that uh, often refers in scripture to a battle cry. When the people were marching around the walls of Jericho, they gave such a shout. It's also a word that's used uh, for loyal subjects when their king would be entering their presence, that they would give a shout of joy. Upon his entry, 1 Samuel 10.4 indicates that when the people shouted as King Saul was coronated. The emphasis on this word is volume. Let me read to you an excerpt from 1 Samuel 4, which illustrates this. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. But it says there that their shouting, the same word, was so loud that the earth shook. The shout of the Israelites was so thunderous it reverberated. 
And when directed to God, this word means a shout of joy. Some translations of Psalm 100 verse 1 say, Make a joyful noise. But noise just doesn't quite capture the essence of this word. The focus is on volume. God desires volume. He desires it to be loud. He desires that we come before Him in this manner. Joyful singing, which we see in the next verse, it's the same idea. The root meaning behind that is actually a ringing cry of joy, to shout aloud, to cry out. See, the psalmist is emphasizing a point here. And that is, as as you approach the Lord, He wants to hear it. God enjoys loud praise. And this is not something that's confined simply to the Old Testament or to the Psalms. In Luke 19, 37, it says there, as soon as Jesus was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. In Revelation 19, 6, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God our Almighty reigns. You get the picture? Pretty loud. You don't have to turn up your aids when you're there. Loud praise. To shout joyfully here in the psalm is not uncontrolled, chaotic, ecstatic noise that he's talking about here, but it is heartfelt praise bellowing forth from a soul that is enjoying God. Let me ask you something. Does that describe your form of worship? If you were to consider how you worship the Lord, would you compare it to a resounding trumpet or a a little plastic kazoo? How is your praise? I know some of you come from a culture that tends to stifle such responses as inappropriate. And to this I say, let your culture go. Let God's Word be your standard. That is what matters here. When you come before the Lord to honor Him with your praises, God wants to hear it. Listen to Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen? Calvary Bible Church, is this you? Is this you? Sometimes I think our praise is unenthusiastic. At times I see some of you barely mouthing the words as we sing. An exclamation of amen or praise the Lord is not often heard here during the preaching. And again, I'm not advocating uncontrolled emotional outbursts, right? That's not my point. So if any of you does that, you know, we have ushers around here that will take care of that. No, but when you sing, sing with all you've got. When you hear and are encouraged by the Word and you hear the greatness of God expounded, call out your praise to Him. When the love and goodness of God is spoken of and your heart is stirred within you, give glory to God verbally. Joy in the the Lord that begins in the heart should not stay there. Express it. God wants to hear it. And again, the psalmist is not talking here about drumming up some emotion to get an uplifting experience. 
No, he's declaring that God desires exuberant worship from the heart. Look at the next command in verse 2. He says to serve the Lord with gladness. The root meaning of the word for serve here is pretty broad. It has the idea of work, often used in regards to a slave, often used in regards to the subjection of someone to a ruler. In reference to God, it's often translated with the word worship. Deuteronomy 6.13 is an example of that. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship or serve Him and swear by His name. Essentially, this word means to bow your life in submission to God and live for His glory. Paul captures it very well in Romans 12.1 when he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The psalmist reminds us of the object of our honor and service, and that is to God. I want you to notice something. Look at every line of this poem. Where is the focus? Shout to the Lord joyfully. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates. Enter His courts. Bless His name. Give thanks to Him, for the Lord is good. You get the point? Who's the object here? Who is the focus? People, who's the focus? God is. Worship God. That's why we come. That's why we gather together. The Lord God is our audience. He is the audience, capital T-H-E. He is the one that is the recipient of our praise. And we need to remember that as we gather here. We need to remember that when we're with fellow believers. We gather here to sing to God. We gather here to hear God's word. We come together that we might better serve and honor him. We come to give to God. We gather to offer prayer to our redeemer. You know, this worship service is all about him, not us. Thank you, brother. You're getting it. And that service that we render unto Him, how does God desire we bring that? What does it say there? Serve the Lord with gladness. Oh, this is such a vital point. God is not interested in some external activity. He's not interested in attendance numbers or whether or not you missed a Sunday here or there. That is not the point. God desires and demands only a certain kind of worship. And that is a worship that comes with a glad heart. That you are glad that you're here. You are glad that you're coming before the Lord. It brings you joy to know that you're serving and honoring Him. That's what He wants to see. That's what He wants. Gladness is a synonym for joy. It's happiness of heart. It's the experience of joy. Here, the primary focus of that joy is worship of the Lord. Spurgeon said it well. He said, our happy God should be worshipped by happy people. This truth blasts forth from this psalm like a tidal wave. The first two verses usher in and wash over us with this important point. Shout joyfully, serve with gladness, come before Him with joyful singing. How would you characterize your worship, your singing, your reception of God's Word when it is preached, your giving? Is it with gladness and joy? Is that out of duty, obligation? Young people, are you coming here because your parents are making you? Or do you want to be here? When you arrive at the doors of this place, 
What is the condition of your heart? Have you come to serve the Lord with gladness? Spurgeon goes on to say, Many people attend to their religion, as they call it, but it is downright slavery. They go up to their place of worship because it is a terrible necessity of custom that respectable people should meet in certain fixed places each Sunday. They look at their religious exercises as a tax, which they pay to God. Serve the Lord with gladness seems to the carnal mind to be a perfect monstrosity. And yet, mark you, this is the test between the genuine and the hypocritical professor. By this one thing shall you know who it is that fears God and who it is that does but offer him the empty tribute of his lips. As for the true believer in Jesus, he serves his God because he loves to serve him. He assembles with the great congregation because it is his delight to worship the Most High. Psalm 122 verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is that you? Is that you? Does the thought of coming here to meet God bring excitement to your soul? Is that something you look forward to? Because God will not have your service if it is not a joyful service. He will not find pleasure in dutiful obligation. Psalm 100 is telling you what God wants, not how, what you want or how you should feel. Worship is not about you. Your satisfaction and fulfillment are not the issue here. God's is. I mean, let me ask you this. Have you ever left here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or after a Bible study or a gathering with fellow believers and ask yourself this one question, did God enjoy what I gave him today? Did he like it? You see, God desires exuberant worship. He wants glad service. Next, we read in verse 2, Come before Him with joyful singing. I've talked about that word joyful singing already a little bit. It's a loud expression of praise and song. God desires exuberant worship to include singing. And again, you ought to remember that, right? Worship is all-encompassing. It's everything about us, not just singing. But singing is definitely a part of it and an important part in this psalm. David saw it as so important that he actually appointed singers and musicians to to go before the Ark of the Covenant when it was being brought into Jerusalem because he wanted the congregation to be led in praise. 1 Chronicles 15, 16 says, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Would you like to have been in that front of that choir, Brad? You know what? In fact, David later on, not long after that, he put together a 4,000-member band that was basically to serve in the temple, musicians, singers, choir, choir directors. And they were to be there at all times in order to lead the congregation in praise as they came into the temple of God. God likes us to sing to Him. Do you realize that? He likes it. This should be evident from the fact that the largest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms which is essentially a hymn book. Psalm 33, 1 through 4 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. 
For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. And again, I ask, how are you doing with this? Is your singing characterized as full of joy? Or is it half-hearted? Perhaps non-existent? Don't miss the point of the psalm here. God wants joyful singing. Psalm 21, 71, excuse me, verse 23 says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. If that doesn't describe you, why? Is there an element of pride, perhaps? Is singing just for emotional people? Or maybe it's the style of music that's a stumbling block for you. Perhaps you don't like those old hymns. You know, I need a beat, man. I need some electric guitar to get me going. Really? Is it about the instruments? Is that what gets you going? Or is it about the object? You know, sure, a good beat may be nice, but that's not the substance. It's singing to the Lord. If you have, if you have to have a beat, then I, you know you need to ask yourself, what is it that you're really singing for? Personal enjoyment or enjoyment of the King? And there may be those of you who are on the other side of that fence. That if it isn't an old hymn, that the song's not appropriate to be sung. Really? Again, is it primarily instruments or style? This has been an ongoing issue every generation. In fact. The person who wrote the tune for William Keith's song, All People on Earth That on Earth Do Dwell, uh, Louis Bourgeois, he's the one that's credited with the tune. He was actually thrown into prison because he tried modifying some of the well-known tunes of songs in his day. Isaac Watts was persecuted and had much opposition because he tried to introduce hymns into the worship service. And yes, I agree. Instruments can be a distraction if we're not careful. They can get in the way. But I got to wonder, what were people saying when David introduced all of those instruments, some of them loud, into the worship service? I wonder if some of the traditionalists there were pretty upset about that. What's he doing? Loud cymbals. can't believe this guy. <laughs> you know, God has built us as emotional creatures, and we respond to music. If I took a solid biblical hymn and had you sing it with no change in melody or note, how do you think that would impact the song? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Makes a difference, doesn't it? I probably said enough to get myself in trouble here, so I'm going to move on. (laughs) Look, I'm just trying to get our focus on the priority here from Psalm 100. And not let our cultural biases miss us or cause us to miss the point here. Singing is about who we are praising and what we are saying to Him. I'm not talking about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, music that accompanies should enhance. I am talking about it. It should enhance that. It should enhance our joy, but it should not be a replacement for it and should not be a distraction away from it. Again, remember, it's who and what we're singing. Now, maybe those of you who struggle with singing or don't sing much or sing very little, maybe it's the fact that that you just feel no joy. Now, I'm not talking about those times in life when you experience tragedy or something hard comes along. I'm talking about if that's the norm for you. 
if it's typically difficult for you to sing or to sing with joy or to sing with passion or to sing enthusiastically. I heard about a man this week who was with a congregation of African pastors and their wives. They were at a conference together. And during the the worship and the singing times together, there was a lot of joy and enthusiasm being expressed. In fact, so much that this man was overwhelmed by it. And so after a few days of this conference, he grabbed one of the African pastors and he said, how is it that you guys can sing with such energy and joy? And this was the pastor's reply. Here's our approach. I can't do an African accent, so you're just going to get this. Here's our approach. We sing when we're happy. We sing when we're not happy. And when we're not happy, we sing until we get happy. (laughs) Sounds kind of simplistic, doesn't it? But you know what? It's actually pretty mature if you really think about it. I want you to see. Let's turn to Psalm 13 for a minute. I want you to see something here. Were they talking about manipulating emotion or being external? I don't think so. Psalm 13. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. Before we go on to the rest of this, what's David's condition here? He's discouraged. He's down. Maybe I'm despairing, right? The enemy has overtaken him. He thinks it's over. In fact, he thinks God has abandoned him. He repeats several times, how long? How long do I have to sit here? How long do I have to take this? How long are you going to be apart from me? Do you hear me, God? Where are you? Can you hear the the emotion there? And I want you to see what David does with this. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But David, you can't feel like singing. Won't it be a little bit fake? You see, David is talking exactly about what our African brother was saying. Singing to the Lord is one of the means which will move you to joy in the Lord. And that is because as you sing, you're taking your focus off of you and on to Him. Tim mentioned that this morning when we opened up together. When your singing is directed to God, it brings into focus who you serve. It brings into focus who is that comfort of joy? Who is that source of comfort? Who is that source of relief? David focused his attention on that. Remember Paul and Silas in prison, right? After they had been beaten, chained to stocks, put in the bowels of a dirty prison, sore and bleeding. The middle of the night, what do we find them doing? Acts 16.25 says that they were singing, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Were these guys nut jobs? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They've been beaten, persecuted, thrown in a dirty prison, and I won't even describe it. It won't be appropriate here to do so, what conditions they were under. It says they were put down below. 
And yet these guys, it says at midnight, were directing their attention and focus on the Lord and singing to Him. Again, we sing when we're happy. We sing when we're not happy. Or we sing until we get happy. And again, happiness and emotions, not the focus here. But that will come with it if it is joyful singing and praise directed to God with gladness. If David or Paul or Silas could sing in those difficult circumstances, could you not also, when we gather together here, or in the car, or in the shower, or as you go about your day? And now if this is a struggle for you, then I want you to keep listening because we're soon going to see the motivation for exuberant worship. So far we've seen that the exuberant worship that God desires is characterized by joyful singing. It's characterized by shouts of joy. It's characterized by glad service. Verse 4 adds one more characteristic to the exuberant worship that God desires, and that is that it come with thankfulness and praise. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Gates and courts here refer to the temple of the Lord. The psalmist here is talking about the formal worship that would take place. Again, as they are bringing their offerings, as people are coming into the temple, as they enter through the gates and into the courtyard, what is it that God desires to have us, when we do that, approach him with? He says here, thanksgiving and praise. That's what he wants to hear. The root meaning behind the word thanksgiving is actually the idea of confession. This word is sometimes used for confession of sin or confession of God, who God is, confession of his works. A thank offering was not a time of sorrow or despair, but it was a time of joy as one freely confessed that sin and experienced the forgiveness that God offered or as one expressed the blessing that God had given in life. The word for praise here is the word hallel. You might recognize that from hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that praise is focused on a verbal boasting. It is too a synonym for thanksgiving because it is a time when a person will verbally extol God from a thankful and a sincere heart. And Scripture shows that thanksgiving and praise come in both word and song. There's a few examples. Psalm 95, 2, Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving, Let us shout joyfully, there's that word again, to him with psalms. Psalm 69.30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify with thanksgiving. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. And again, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. We're not just talking about, oh, that's only in the psalms. We're called to do that. Not at all. New Testament, Colossians 3.15. Listen carefully as I read this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice thankfulness is repeated there three times. And it's to characterize our singing. Even in prayer, Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Even when you're tempted to anxiety, you're to come to Him with thankful attitude in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God 
for you in Christ Jesus. What kind of people does God desire to have come before him? Thankful people. Psalm 100 verse 4, it presents the picture of God's people coming through the gates, entering the courts, and they're speaking highly of God. They're giving joyful exclamations of what he has done and who he is. People all around proclaiming loudly praises to the Lord. Others exclaiming his wonderful blessings and forgiveness. Others speaking of the great things that he has done in their lives or for his people. Others may be singing with thankfulness for his care and his love and his correction. How are we doing here, Calvary? Is this what you hear as you approach the doors? Is this what you heard this morning? As you enter the foyer or the pews? Would we be characterized as those who enter with thanksgiving and praise? Notice I'm saying we. I've been asking myself these questions all week. How much are you giving thanks to him and blessing his name? What do you say to others as you enter here? Did you talk about the games from yesterday? Nothing wrong with football. I love it. But when I come here this morning, my focus and attention is not on sports. It's on who? On the Lord. Giving him thanks and honor. Unless maybe you prayed for an outcome yesterday and it happened and you wanted to thank God for it. I guess that might pass. (laughs) What do you say to others as you enter? Is praise to God the focus? You know, as we look at these characteristics of exuberant worship, how do you fare? You know, I know for me, as I considered and studied this psalm, I found my level of enthusiasm and worship to be lacking. Often... I come distracted. Often I have other things on my mind, other things apart from God as I come before Him. There are many times that my own worship is not exuberant. At times even shamefully, I need to confess it, sometimes unenthusiastic, indifferent. You been there? As you examine your worship of the Lord, would you say that yours is exuberant? You know, consistent exuberant worship is difficult. Otherwise, we wouldn't be commanded to do it. The encouraging thing, though, about this psalm is that it tells us how we can get there. It doesn't just say you need to have exuberant worship. It provides for us the motivation for that exuberant worship. What the psalmist has to say in verses 3 and 5 here will motivate you to genuine, enthusiastic, and joyful worship and praise given to God. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Look down at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His, faithful, his loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. The worship that God desires is not a manipulation of emotions through upbeat music or mindless repetition or, or some guy up front here jumping all up and down excited trying to work you into a frenzy. That's not what he's talking about. Genuine exaltation of God is a response to something. It's a response to God. It's a response to knowing Him, who He is, and what He has done. John Piper said it well. He said, God means to be known with the head, and He means to be sung from the heart. He means for the singing to be based on the knowing. Otherwise, the singing gives Him no honor. 
Singing to God joyfully based on knowing God truthfully honors God. But singing passionately without knowing God truly simply exalts the singer and the passions. I think he's right. John 4.24, Jesus said, God seeks worshipers, and those worshipers are ones who worship in spirit, that is, from the heart, genuine and truth. You will not rightly give God the glad worship and joyful praise He desires unless you know who He is, unless you you reflect on what He has done. In verse 3, the first thing that the psalmist points out that we are to know is that the Lord is God. In fact, he says the Lord himself is God. The poet introduces an extra pronoun in order to provide emphasis. He's basically saying the Lord, the Lord alone is God. Just like in Isaiah 44, 6, which says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no other God besides me. Is he your God? Have you bowed the knee before Christ and asked His forgiveness for your sin? You must acknowledge Him as the only sovereign God before you can offer Him the worship that He deserves and desires. The psalmist says in verse 3 that God also deserves exuberant worship because He is Creator. He says, It is He who has made us, not we ourselves. The desire to serve and follow the Lord should come from the recognition that you owe your very existence to God. Even now as you sit here breathing and your heart beating and your stomach digesting breakfast and all the stuff going on inside your body to keep you alive. All of that is coming from the hand of God in this moment. Acts 17, Paul says it very clearly. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Because he says there, since he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. He gives, present tense, is giving right now. You owe your life and breath to God at this very moment. That alone should prompt you to enthusiastic worship. The psalmist calls us not only to reflect on God's position as sovereign, on his position as creator, sustainer, but he also points direction to his character as a motivation for exuberant worship. Look at verse 5. God deserves our exuberant praise because He is good, because He is love, because He is faithful. Psalm 106 echoes a refrain that's, that's heard throughout Scripture. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And to say that the Lord is good, he's talking about there that the Lord is beautiful. He is lovely. He's worthy. He's desirable. He's attractive. He's pleasing. It's the glorifying essence of God, really. And I say that because of what happened in Exodus 33 when Moses, he wanted to see God's glory. And notice how God responded to that. Moses said in verse 18 of chapter 33, I pray you show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, okay, my goodness will pass before you. 
God's goodness is who He is. It's displayed all the time. His care over creation. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all His works. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yet some people may say, How could God be good when there's all this evil? That statement assumes something. It assumes that person knows with certainty that there could be no ultimate good reason behind all that happens. I find that a pretty arrogant statement. The person saying, I know everything there is to know. I know every possible outcome. I know everything that God knows. And therefore, I can make the evaluation that none of this that's happening is, could be for any ultimate good. We don't even, we can't even see the edge of the universe. We don't even know the depths of the ocean. They're still discovering creatures we've never seen before. We cannot explain how atoms are held together or how the universe is held together. We don't understand what is behind all that. And yet we can know with certainty that God could have no ultimate good reason for all that occurs on this earth. (laughs) I don't think so. No, God is good. God is good. If any of you ever have any doubts, look over on that wall. What does that symbol remind you of? Would an evil God become a man, send his son to die for you and me? What does the Bible say about that? God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, sinners means rebel, sinners means hater of God, sinners means, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want my own life. Thank you very much. Talk to the hand. That's what it means when he says that. But yet... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is good. The psalmist also proclaims in verse 5, His loving kindness is everlasting. And that's that difficult word in the Old Testament, chesed, which incorporates so much that it's hard to translate. In fact, there's no Greek word or English word really to to be equivalent to that because it carries the idea of mercy, of compassion, of loyalty, of love, of kindness. Loving kindness is probably the best way to translate it. Reminds me of Romans eight thirty-five: Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, as if he left something out, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle John said of God, how did he describe him in 1 John 4? God is, God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested to us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. As we reflect on God's goodness, on His love, as ultimately expressed in Jesus, shouldn't it stir you to such a level of excitement that you would shout for joy? 
If you're not thankful, if there's not joyful singing or shouting or glad worship, then either you are not meditating on God, you don't understand Him, or maybe you don't know Him. You need to study deeply what God has revealed about Himself. That will stir your passions. That will move you to joyful praise. That will move you to glad service to God. Study carefully such texts as Psalm 139, Psalm 145, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. They reveal the character of God. Learn and sing the mighty hymns of the faith, immortal, invisible, the love of God. I sing the mighty power of God, which extol His attributes, which bring to the forefront who God is. Read good books on God's attributes. If you are God's child, then the more that you dwell on Him... The more that you spend time focused on Him, the more your soul will be stirred to exuberant worship. I guarantee it. One pastor said melody, or memory, excuse me, should stir melody. And God deserves this exuberant worship, not only because of who He is, but also because of what He's done. Look back at verse 3 with me. The psalmist says, We are His people and and the sheep of His pasture. What does this express? He's presenting an image here, describing God a certain way so that we can understand that God is focusing on calling attention to a relationship, to intimacy. He extends himself not only as creator, not only as Lord, but also as shepherd, also as one who cares and protects. John 10, Jesus uses this description of himself in a beautiful picture of how he cares for us. He says there, In John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Praise the Lord. What is he saying here? He laid down his life for his sheep. He gives his sheep eternal life. He watches over the souls of his sheep. If you're saved, ponder this. God has chosen you. God has redeemed you. God cares for you. He's granted you a relationship with him in eternity. Psalm 71, 23 says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul which you have redeemed. You know, I don't know, about a month ago when Rick was, Horia was playing up here, he made this statement that stuck with me, simple but very profound. He said, of all the people on the earth who have something to sing passionately about, it's us. He was on the mark. And that is the message of this psalm. If you are saved, then just reflecting on the fact that you are God's sheep, that fact alone should move you to great joy and gladness. It should move you to joyful singing and passionate praise of your Savior. Right? Shouldn't it? I first heard the song, <clears throat> How Deep the Father's Love for Us, a few years ago. Uh, Rose Sterla gave a beautiful rendition of it. And it moved me to tears because it reminded me so vividly of what God had done for me. I want you to listen to the words. I know many of you know them, but listen to them. 
How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast, praise Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. If you truly understand that you are a sinner, if you genuinely grasp the greatness and the holiness and the majesty of God and how wicked that sin is, just to hear the words, His wounds have paid your ransom. That should stir you to joy and gratitude. It should come bursting forth. Jesus died for your sins. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is good. I began our time with a question, so I'm going to end it with one. What does your worship say about God? Think about those who may come to visit us on a given Sunday. There may be some here today. Maybe they're coming to check this Christianity thing out and see what it's all about. What do they see as we sing? What do they notice as we pray, as we hear God's word, as we give? You're expressing to them exactly what you think and feel about God and how you do that. When you do not serve or sing or worship with joy and gladness, what does that say about God? Does that tell people he's a, he's a tyrannical master, not a loving father? Paul and Silas, their songs of praise to God so influenced the jailer that he came to them wanting to have the same thing they had, wanting to know, how is it you could sing in these circumstances? You must have an amazing God. I want to know him. What must I do to be saved? Someone was to ask you, how do you feel about your wife, your husband? You said, my wife? Yeah, she's all right. I love her. She's a good cook. Takes care of laundry. Keeps the house going. I'll keep her. She does a lot. What is that? Yet that's exactly what some of us say about God when you worship him with a lack of passion. Unenthusiastic worship tells everybody else, God, yeah, he's okay. He does a lot for me. I like him. It's your singing, your prayer, your giving, your attentiveness, or your response to the sermon like the man who says of his wife, yeah, she's okay. Or of a man who can barely restrain himself, I love her. I love my wife. I love Tina. And I'm not ashamed to tell any of you that. I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not embarrassed to let you know how I feel about her. How about you and the Lord? Does your expression of worship display an embarrassment about your relationship with Him? Or does it tell the world, I love God. He's my God. And I want to praise Him. I want to thank Him. 
I'm not ashamed to yell out, praise the Lord. It doesn't embarrass me to say amen. (laughs) Didn't embarrass that guy. (laughs) Now, some of you may be uncomfortable with the idea of giving exuberant worship. Just why is that? Why is it a struggle to show emotion? (laughs) Maybe pride. Maybe pride. How come the gladness of knowing God doesn't show on your face? Is it that maybe you have the idea that, you know, showing any emotion is uh, bad or wrong or weak, especially here in church? We don't just do that here. You know what? Emotions are not wrong in and of themselves unless they lead to sinful behavior. God displays emotions, right? Many examples of him showing sorrow, having compassion. Jesus wept. Jesus got angry. Jesus express joy but god's not ruled by emotions but he does experience them and being made in the image of god so do we when our emotions are directed to god as an expression of our relationship in god they are a good thing in fact we're called and commanded to express these emotions when we give praise to god if you recall ephesians 5 18 it says there do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit And then what does he say right after that? Evidence of that filling will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. When the Holy Spirit fills you, the word of Christ richly dwells within you. Your natural response is going to be, I want to sing. I want to make melody to God. I want to praise him. And don't misunderstand me here, please. Do not be driven to exuberant praise by guilt. Okay. Psalm 100 doesn't say worship God joyfully or else you better praise God or he's going to get mad and stomp you. Better show God you're happy. Work up some emotions. Better do it quick to keep him appeased. It's not it at all. That's how the pagans worshiped idols. We've got to bring this guy something. He's going to wipe us out. That's not what God's interested in. That's not at all what it is. Brothers and sisters, when you truly reflect on who God is, on what he's done for you, then you will not be able to hold back your joy. You will not be able to contain it. And my prayer is that Calvary Bible Church will show the world that we have a great God, one worthy to be worshipped, one to be enjoyed, one who freely gives and blesses, one who wants us to be passionate for him. He is God, He is good, and He has saved us. And He offers that salvation to the world. In fact, the first line of this poem shouts joyfully to the Lord, All the earth! This is a missional psalm. It's intended to proclaim to the world through our praise and through our joy that God is worthy. God is worthy. Is He good? Then proclaim it. Is His love forever? Then tell us about it. Is Jesus your Savior? And praise Him for it. Let's pray. Lord God, you know my heart on this. I I really got desire to be like the one represented in this psalm, whose heart is full of joy, whose heart expresses to you or just the gladness in knowing and serving you. And I pray, God, you would just work in this church, Lord, to make us those who honor you by how we praise you, who honor you by how we serve you, who bring you joy 
and gladness as we sing to you and declare all the things you have done and declare all of who you are. Lord, let us not represent you as an unkind or malevolent God. But Lord, as we proclaim that goodness, Lord, may we show you to be a God that is worthy and good and beautiful and desirable. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to give you an opportunity.